0: Call it? Call it, yes. For what? Just call it.
1: Welcome to episode 23 of Call It Friend, of the podcast where two friends watch two films decided by the flip of a coin. This week, myself and DJ Richie and my co-host Donna Tiernan watched two films directed by Chinese-American filmmaker Chloe Zhao, 2017's The Rider and 2020's Nomadland. As always, this podcast contains spoilers for both films right from the start. Check out JustWatch.com for streaming and rental options in your region. Nomadland will be streaming on Hulu from Friday, February 19th. Please follow Call It Friend Podcast on Instagram, like the Facebook page, leave a review on iTunes or any or all of the above. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at callitfriendopodcast at gmail.com. Okay? Thanks.
0: For a mean baby, well, I like your pants. Born in
2: I got contacted with with a question. Got a got a question from who? a listener question. From Oli Vellaratney.
1: Oh nice. What was the question? The question was Why uh, are you subjecting us to this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. The question was Now that, like, because
2: last week we were talking about Benson and Moorhead and this week we're going to be moving on to Chloe Zhao. Do we think that anybody has come and gone from Marvel Studios with their filmmaking style
1: intact? Oh, that's I was thinking about this earlier today. I was thinking about Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck because they are not signed on to do Captain Marvel 2. It's going to be Neo Da Costa.
2: Yeah, and... I, with them, even with Captain Marvel, I would give them a maybe for some of the, like there's flashback shooting, which kind of does their sort of weird handheld POV style. But really and truly, in most cases, doesn't it seem like all the Marvel films could
1: have been directed by the same person? Quite possibly. But then I think it's interesting that Marvel have gone and, and got all of these people. Like you've got Chloe's out. Kate Shortland, Destin Daniel Cretton, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck, and they all have like a very distinctive visual style. Mm. But I think it, like that's what they were hired for. They have a good eye for for imagery because it's like being a showrunner at this point. You know, Kevin Feige's clearly running is running everything mm. overall at, at Marvel. So they just want a safe pair of hands. Well, okay, they're bringing in people who are relatively untested, but they're people that know how to make. Interesting, uh, good-looking films.
2: I have the correct answer. Go. It's it's Taika Waititi.
1: Yes, Thor Ragnarok definitely has his voice. Yeah, Piss off yeah his voice.
2: Yeah, yeah. I would even like, yeah, say his visual style, but amped mm. up to a fucking billion, and then hit over the head with a CGI hammer. Particularly now, I am, and we'll obviously get to it because we'll be talking all about Chloe's out. But I am particularly interested to see how her filmmaking style interacts with Marvel Studios. I mean, that is... Quite a left field choice, isn't
1: it? Well, I think it's. I just hope she's going to bring an element of realism. I assume she's going to be using real superheroes playing kind of fiction. She's going to be like playing fictionalized versions of themselves. She is. She actually went, she hung around, she hung out with real Eternals for months leading up to the shoot. Just a bunch of earthbound gods living on this (laughs) reservation in South Dakota.
2: (laughs) In South Dakota, which is where uh, Paxton and uh, Anne Hathaway. First met
1: was it? Was it South or North Dakota? Have we ever figured Uh, that
2: out? A listener and a friend, Joanne, yeah, pointed out that it was South Dakota.
1: Let's just give a shout out, Joanne Torres, uh, one of the the
2: finest chefs in Texas. Indeed, yeah, all hail West Texas. I am about halfway into uh, season two of the Deuce, David Simon's show, which is basically Boogie Nights, the series, with sort of less introspection and also it's very notable particularly when you're watching The Deuce, that Paul Thomas Anderson has never come near the issue of race in any of his films, I don't think. Mm. Because it's, obviously it's a big factor in The Deuce. But yeah, The Deuce is just absolutely terrific. I'm, I would go as far as to say it's the most humane thing David Simon has done. Uh, I've also been, as I've been saying to you, I've been devouring Adam Curtis's latest series, Can't Get You Out of My Head, which is very much, I'm going to say, a film he's made many times before. But, this one, is, but a, this one is
1: about Kylie Minogue, is that correct?
2: Yes, that's right. This one is about Kylie Minogue. No, this is just about the failure of individualism versus neoliberalism versus blah, 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 oh, blah. that, old, that mean, old chestnut. But he's just like, I just think he's a phenomenal artist. He's one of my favorite people operating and his, all his work, Okay, some of it is a bit, little bit more distinct, like uh, All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace is, the, is about the effect of computers on society and the micromanagement of the human mind, etc. It could easily be, a, I don't know, a six-hour installation in a museum. It's that kind of arty, but I absolutely love it.
1: And then just last night, I watched Greenland. Oh, I, that's the one with Gerard Butler. I actually want to watch that, it's, uh, even though I've already read the synopsis.
2: It's really good. It's honestly really good. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed it.
1: I like all these things where the world is ending. It gives me hope. Well, I like good
2: ones, you know, to be honest. I, like, I would never, I think people uh, shit on those sort of things far too readily. I, far too, I suppose there is a load of bollocks in that particular genre. But uh, when they're good, they're good. And Greenland is really, really good.
1: I remember watching a very similar documentary called 2012, directed by Roland Emmerich. Ah, uh, yes. John Cusack did some of the talking heads on that. Yeah, that's correct. That was a very interesting insight did, into our planet. Did he also direct the historical documentary um, 10,000 BC? I believe so, yeah, which was an impressive feat to to get cameras to to film something in that time period and then bury the cameras under under the ground to be unearthed by future generations
2: i was Mm -hmm. working in a cinema when that came out so i just went to see everything and uh
1: i barely recall that that was a thing
2: yeah but just when you mentioned it, i was like
1: oh yeah
2: yeah so i went to see that and uh what a load of bollocks it's one of the worst things i've ever seen in a cinema
1: well, I haven't seen it, so look forward to that for a future toss. Mm,
2: indeed. But anyway, yeah, Greenland gets my full recommendation. I really really enjoyed it. All right.
1: I'll, I will watch that.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, it's on Amazon Prime, but it was not what we were uh, what we were watching this week, is it?
1: No, although one of our films uh, this week was heavily uh, heavily involves Amazon as a company. But that's the second film. Before that, we have The Rider.
2: Oh, yeah. And God, the worst thing about you winning the coin toss is I have to go first. You know that? Yes. God, I hate it. I enjoy that. (laughs) (laughs) Oi, okay. Right. So, uh, first of all, I suppose a bit of info on Chloe Zhao, who's um, I don't know. She she just doesn't have the kind of backstory you would figure into the sort of features she's making. No, it's kind of mental. But I suppose I mean, much like in the film Spotlight, it takes an outsider, you know, because yeah, Chloe.
1: So wait, are you are you equating the the inner workings of the Pine Ridge Reservation with the sexual abuse scandals of the Catholic Church? No, I'm not. But I'm
2: glad you brought it up. I'm a Equating Chloe Zhao to the Jewish editor from Spotlight, who comes in and shines a light. <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. She was born in China, daughter of a former head of like the, the Chinese Communist Party steel industry. So from just a stupidly wealthy family, like as in money is no object, a science fiction oligarchy type family. She took an early interest in filmmaking, having, I think she was educated in London and then later Los Angeles. and she
1: went to boarding school. mm -hmm.
2: And then uh, for her dissertation, let's say, in um, film school, she just went out traveling around the country to find stories, much the way, you know, in a similar way to um, someone like Sean Baker. And she found her first film, which is the one, uh, I don't, you haven't seen
1: it either, have you? No, I haven't, but I did plan to watch it.
2: Songs My Brother Taught Me, which is on an Indian reservation also. And uh, then later came along to the first film we're going to cover today, which is uh, 2017's The Rider*. Now, I saw The Writer a few years ago. I did prefer watching it this time. Um, it's still, It still wouldn't exactly be my cup of tea, let's say, even though I completely appreciate what it does. But just shoot some questions at you. First of all, where did you sit overall with these two films?
1: I definitely preferred The Rider. Yeah, me too. I really, really liked The Rider. That spoke to me. I think it was something about seeing uh, seeing a world that I had no idea of. I just had no concept of like this kind of like bronco rodeo world that these characters live in. Yeah plus using real actors playing semi-fictionalized versions of themselves i mean calling them a- they're not even actors just using No there's no actors people. there's
2: no actors yeah exactly i mean one of the actually one of the most impressive moments in this is when they're in credits roll and you just see names beside names like these yeah. these are exactly the people
1: you know and i thought there's a truth and honesty and reality to everything i think in, in, in both of the films but obviously more so in the rider because you're seeing the lives of these people. And I think there's no clearer moment than that, which will, I mean, we'll, we will get to it, But when, when you meet Lane Scott mm. and the reality of his situation is uh, highlighted, it, it's, it's very, very, I find it very moving.
2: Yeah. It's profoundly dramatic and very moving. Yeah. That, like that's the thing. Um, and the same, the same energy kind of uh, bleeds into Nomadland in that just everything here is real so just the tiniest i don't know the tiniest what would be in another work being a a minor emotional beat is major here because it's so real every everything becomes like 10 times more poignant and i think despite all the magic hour shooting because of the people yeah yeah because of the people that populate these films it just makes them much more emotionally real i mean these are practically documentaries aren't they
1: yeah as far as i'm aware the vast majority of it is seems fairly accurate they just changed the names a little bit lane scott was injured in a car accident though ah where did you find it, that I, it, I, I couldn't find any information re- on him i read a rolling stone article uh, about Chloe out and the rider which I'll, I'll put in the show notes all right fair enough i also watched some of lane scott's videos on on youtube some of the real videos of him doing his like bull riding was it gnarly it's the same videos that they show in the film because obviously it's like a real story so you can you can watch those videos but they were posted back in like 2012
2: well no I figured they were real particularly mm-hmm. well and then it was uh, confirmed for me in the end credits of the film you know <laughs> because I tell you what considering she's using all non actors it would be a hell of a first gig to give a non- actor to act uh, like Lane Scott does through most of the film you know what I mean that would be dumping Heavy method acting on somebody quite young to the game.
1: <laughs> that, but that was a, because I mentioned before I don't read up on these films before I watch them. Hmm. So when when I while I was watching, I was watching, I was watching Lane Scott, and I didn't know he was a real guy or anything. And I was watching him going like, "Wow, he's really good at acting <laughs> like someone who's <laughs> who's suffered a life changing injury." <laughs> Yes this is exceptional. He's really committed to the to the performance here.
2: Film opens with some typical kind of footage that we'll get to know over the course of the two films actually just absolutely sublime magic hour shooting very Terence y
1: My first note that I wrote is Mal- she has Zao has a Malick like eye for nature. Mm.
2: Yeah yeah, for sure. It seems like a a nature documentary about people a lot of the time you can tell that they're non-actors in these roles but i mean seeing particularly brady interact with animals it's like you you can't learn that as an actor you just cannot
1: that's i mean that's the other great strength of the film or the scenes where brady's training horses cuz you know in those scenes it was just very clear that this is someone who knows what they're doing it's just competence porn you're you're watching someone do they're watching you're watching someone with uh with a real talent do their job well mm.
2: Yeah, it's like it's beautiful to see.
1: I found those scenes to be some of the most moving, mm. which is insane because you're just watching someone train a horse and I was almost in tears watching those. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, mad.
2: Oh, yeah, we'll get true. we'll get to these. So, all right. Well, we pop from the sublime of the magic hour dream shooting to the grim where Brady wakes up and he has to redress a wound on his head that he's clearly got recently because you see him pick stitches out of his head. We don't yet learn what the injury is from but we will because the film is just just you won't pass five minutes without some rodeo regalia being in front of you you know this is the world that they that they sort of live in it's very much reminded me of uh, the darren aronofsky film the wrestler i mean it just sh- yeah. it shares a lot of dna with that we're watching this guy treat his own injuries and we're going wow i mean what could be worth that you know,
1: also you've got this, you've got these like group of people who are into this sport, a sport that I, it, it, I never, I've never even thought of as, as a sport, mm. you know, this like uh, Bronco riding type thing that clearly he's like a local celebrity where he's from. And it, it's something that means so much to them and drives everything that they do. Mm. But it's just such a foreign concept to me. It is the equivalent of like low level wrestling. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're introduced to Brady's family. He lives with his father, Wayne, and his uh, autistic sister, Lily. We've mentioned it already, but this is a real family. And you can kind of tell. You can kind of tell that these people aren't used to being in front of a camera. Let's say that.
1: <laughs>
2: uh, just by certain pauses and deliveries of lines. But like that is kind of balanced off by the fact that these are clearly real people and real faces. And you know what I mean? We see them operating inside their their house we learn Wayne really doesn't contribute much to the household just drinking and gambling much of the time at the same time i don't think the film judges him too harshly and neither do i because you're kind of going well what the f-bomb else is there to do around
1: there you know what i mean it's kind of mad that the father wayne portraying himself as a character was like yeah it's fine you can just you know you can make me look like this guy who's just out drinking and and gambling and stuff (laughs) like he's just like yeah no worries I had that note later on for there, there's a bar scene where one of Brady's friends tries to give Lily alcohol. Mm. <laughs> it just felt like, why make your friend look like an arsehole? <laughs> Unless it really happened. I don't know.
2: Yeah, 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 that's true enough. Even though it, it got fully confirmed for me in the end credits when you see all the names flash up, like I, tr- it truly like just rocked me and hit it, it hit me um, that we're just going to be seeing real people here. When we see Brady walk up to the side of a sort of a horse pen, and there's a guy there that just has no hand; he has a clamp for
1: a hand. Oh, yeah, he's got he's got a hook for hand yeah, yeah. which is it's useful for horse training and
2: i was just piracy uh, yeah i was just thinking okay that's that's what we're doing we're just like it, it sort of reminded me of it's even in you know good the bad and the ugly there's a part where um just a guy with no legs just wanders up and you're just kind of watching going, well, I guess he was near wherever the fuck they were shooting this. And, you know, like, we'll just use him because eh, he's like, it's a bit interesting. It's kind of
1: charismatic to see. Also, these, as far as I'm aware, this family, they all live on the Pine Ridge Reservation and they are actually Sioux. Yeah, I know. and you... Which is, it is not clear to me. It wasn't clear to me while watching it that they're natives. Yeah, I know. No, me neither.
2: I suppose that's just the... Um... Not what we've been uh, taught to expect, I suppose, uh, from somebody who would be considered a Sue.
1: Yeah, that's it. I was like, where's Sam (laughs) McClarnon? I'm accustomed to him appearing and stuff.
2: Then we we see that uh, he's beginning to get sort of seizures in his hand that we automatically relate to his rodeo accident, which is, yeah, yeah. they're kind of um, tough to watch. It's just his grip will lock up and he can't let go of things, which begins kind of the um, metaphor of the film not being able to let go.
1: There is one easy answer for that, though. Amputation and just have a hook put on.
2: Yeah, I know. Like your neighbor. Exactly. Like your cool, cool neighbor it could be a pirate. Straight up, straight up. I, I really, really enjoyed this. And I think that this film is, will finally make an excellent text to finally explicitly explain to people why I couldn't watch and can't watch bullshit like uh, The Tiger King, for example. I can't stand. Oh.
1: Uh, I, I watched about 20 seconds, not 20 seconds, I watched about 20 minutes of that and, and I was out. I just hate that
2: weird voyeurism shit. Like, it's the same with Making a Murderer. I think it's just like. Yeah.
1: Similarly, I've watched about one episode of that and I couldn't continue. Yeah, I me mean, neither because I, I like, and I like, people
2: love this stuff and people think I'm being snooty, but I just, I feel just, just really dirty watching shit like that. And I think Mm -hmm. what Chloe Zhao does with particularly this film and even Nomadland as well, is she kind of tells this story in a non voyeuristic way. She makes them the protagonist rather than something to be leered at, which like automatically means that you can, yeah, you can just enjoy this world that you would otherwise never see. And not in a creepy voyeuristic way, despite the fact that, yeah, you do see so, like a fair amount of grimness throughout the film. You do not feel like you're looking down on anybody. As particularly on account of some things we learned throughout. Okay. So we see his, his world, his world is hanging out with his friends, talking about rodeo, smoking weed. They smoke loads of weed in the film. And, uh, yeah, they just, they live for rodeo and, um, they love rodeo. That's, that's what they're all about, essentially. And then in a, in a bar, somebody approaches Brady and asks him maybe if he could come train horses. I don't think it's till later in the film that he goes and, and, and trains this guy's particular horse. Uh, but soon afterwards, we see him train a horse. And then it's just, I mean, that in itself, as you were just saying, like if ever there's a reason why you can't really look down on these characters, it's just watching him train a horse. It's just, just magic. Like, it's it's, it's a, amazing to see. I don't know, did you find anything on whether or not the horses they used were initially wild, and did they hang around them? Yes. Really?
1: Yeah, I, It's similarly in that Rolling Stone article, it said that those were real wild horses, and that was real footage of him breaking the horses. Wow. Because
2: it's just spectacular. It Like, he just has a shorthand with animals that you just can't fake. Next up, we've heard him referred to before, but we see him visit his friend Lane for the first time. Lane's got like a big tattoo on his back that says uh, say I won't which is like say I won't and I will and uh, we learned that he is the way he is which is he lives in a rehab facility due to brain damage he's got constant physiotherapy because of a rodeo accident you might have thought that was an acting performance but like I just kind of automatically figured oh no this is this is where we're at this is a real guy and we're basically telling his story. We're probably telling his story more than Brady's, I'd say.
1: It comes down to Brady throughout the film making the choice between am I going to pursue my dream and end up like Lane or am I going to walk away and and live a different life working as a horse trainer? Mm. Which, and I think this is why I prefer the rider because the conflict is very clear. The internal conflict within Brady of making these choices, like am I going to... Metaphorically and literally, get back on the horse and re-enter the world of like bronco riding—the the world which has made him like a local celebrity and and made him money, or else is he is he just going is he going to make the correct sane choice and walk away from this this thing that has driven his entire life he has two choices it's similar to the wrestler again mm. is like he can, he can make that wrestler ending of he can he can, he will probably die if he does this again if he if he continues doing the Bronco riding so that's there's a clear drama and conflict there mm. which I felt wasn't in Nomadland and is why I didn't enjoy Nomad land so much
2: so Brady's tit of a father sells his horse uh, to pay for their trailer, which um, is a direct reference to the William Faulkner book "As I Lay Dying," which is something that happens to the one of the main characters in that his own horse is sold by his dad in order to just fund some fund some bullshit. Well, uh, that's what I reckoned. I, I do, I, I do, th- I do think it is because then it, it forces it forces uh, Brady to grow up slightly and uh, take a little bit of stock. So he begins working in a in a shop. To raise money for his family, which is, again, very much shares DNA with the wrestler.
1: The other thing tonally that this struck me is similar to Sweet Sixteen by Ken Loach. And also, mm. Brady looks like Marin Comston.
2: He does, yeah, actually, now that you mention and that. A
1: similar acting, similar acting style.
2: Brady uh, Jandreau hasn't done any more acting, has he?
1: No, because... He's not an uh, actor. I'm th- I guess, it'd, no, it'd be quite tough. I think he would have to do something that was about or that involved horses Mm. i'm sure he could i'm sure he could get like a horse i mean he i I read a little bit about what he does now he runs his own horse training thing uh agency type thing he's married to the girl the lady that he smokes the weed with sitting outside in the truck that's his wife and they have they have a young uh daughter together
2: oh well i'm glad it all worked out for brady so yeah, he makes a bunch more money breaking in horses and then he intends to buy another horse named Apollo, but in the end his father buys it for him, and uh, which is the kind of moment we, I mean, I don't think you're ever really judging or meant to judge the father, but that's a, a nice sort of a sweet uh, gesture. I'd say during this film, Chloe Zhao basically shot for 20 minutes a day a lot of the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, everything is a, yeah, exactly, magic hour, like just, just as the sun is going down. So clearly they're shooting, yeah, as you say, at the same time every day. I, I, I mean, not not to knock Zhao, mm. because I think she is excellent. I think she she can capture mm. really beautiful shots of nature and the uh, great outdoors. But I feel like if you're in the Badlands and you have a camera and you wait until the sun's going down, it, it's just going to look beautiful. There's so much sky.
2: If you're shooting like this, just, I mean, yeah, the, the Malik comparisons are inevitable. One of, these day, one of these days I'm, I'm going to have to put up one of the Malick films I haven't seen and I'm afraid to see just so somebody will have to go through it with me.
1: Oh, you mean one of the modern ones? Because I've I've seen all the old ones, I think. I've seen everything up till um, the Tree of Life. The film Badlands, I imagine, was shot in the same place, or it's supposed to be the Badlands of South Dakota, I'm guessing.
2: I'd say Mm. certainly Days of Heaven was was shot around here, I know that. Anyway, back to this. So he makes his little bit of extra money and he gets his new horse, Apollo, but then he falls off the horse and has a near-fatal seizure and a doctor tells him that if he rides any more, he'll die which uh you know is a tough dose to hear he arrives home and around the same time sees a bunch of barbed wire um lacerated into his horse's leg and um they have to put him down which uh how did you how did you feel about that scene
1: even before brady starts talking about it it seems pretty clear that the horse is supposed to represent brady you know he he later makes a speech after he's put the horse down but as soon as I saw the leg, I feel like we've witnessed this in quite a few films. I think we've talked about it already. It was like similar to if you had suffered that type of leg injury yourself in the like nineteenth or early twentieth century, mm. you might die, uh, or you might you might basically be put down yourself. So I, I was fully aware that Brady was going to pull his gun out, but I was surprised that he was he wasn't capable of of pulling the trigger. But then he gets his dad to do it and he, instead after he whistles, which I believe is a reference to uh, the Bronco riding.
2: So this is kind of, he kind of makes his bed for himself there. He goes to um, pawn his Bronco sal- uh, saddle, which is something he can't do. And he starts pushing his, sh- well, actually Lane's old shirt and then his old shirt. I don't know, whatever you call uh, the things that you use to cover your jeans where you're riding a horse. Uh, chaps chaps oh yes yes sure you're a big fan of the assless variety
1: that's crap wearing them right now (laughs) (laughs) actually just on the on the topic of clothes the first thing that i did after this after i watched this film was i went straight online and started looking up carhartt jackets i was like i want a carhartt jacket because everyone is wearing car these big carhartt work jackets throughout the film and i realized i want one if you go to carhartt.com and enter the promo code (laughs) assless (laughs) <laughs> they'll probably eject you from the site, but you can try
2: so then uh, we see um brady sort of push his rodeo gear on this uh, younger fella who he's then trying to train to be a rodeo rider we see a bit of a methodology in in uh, what they do as they practice on some like mechanical contraption it's supposed to be an imitation of a horse or, or a wild cow or whatever it's a uh, pretty good acting from Brady uh, jean Drouin in that you can kind of Or maybe it's just that we've seen this scene in films many times before, but we can kind of see that he's giving the stuff away. But he totally resents the young fellas like a youth and vigor and the fact that he doesn't have a fucking brain injury.
1: So he attempts to give him one.
2: (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He challenges him to a a wrestling match and uh, then keeps him in a headlock too long, which is kind of, you know, you can see this beat coming a mile away. But there it is. Yeah. In the next scene, you see him go to try and pawn his Bronco saddle. And in the end, he changes his mind about that. Got some familiar beats in the in the story at this point. Next thing we see, we see him go to visit Lane again. And um, we see him like practicing, doing physiotherapy with Lane by going <clears> through <throat> the imitations of what it's like to ride a horse, which is a kind of a sweet moment. He's telling him to pull it around left, pull it around yeah. to the right. In this moment in the film, there's a sort of a wrong footing that I really appreciated. And actually, there's this, there's a, a, a very good wrong footing, or maybe I'm just an idiot a, in Land as well. But anyway, like you're kind of expecting Blaine to give the a sort of a, a speech if uh, insofar as he can to Brady to sort of warn him away from rodeo riding when he like to sort of say, don't let this happened to you or whatever.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was kind of expecting the same, but instead he's saying, don't give up on your dreams.
2: Yeah, yeah. Instead, he's kind of urging him on to do it. I thought that was very interesting because obviously the typical beat in anything like this would be somebody with brain injury warning you not to get a brain injury. But there you go. So then soon after that, we see Brady have a a big argument with his father where he is just like, because his father sees him uh, throwing his saddle into the back of a truck. He's going to go and do the rodeo. He's going to go uh, rodeo ride again, and he he goes down there. Uh, This section of the film (laughs) reminded me of open mic nights just uh, waiting around
1: one of the sections I, I really f- reminded me of stand-up comedy is the one where he goes and just watches other people do the rodeo mm. and you can see he's so frustrated because he's like I want to be doing like I want to be up there yeah,
2: yeah, yeah you know
1: he's like ner- he's not even on that he's not even on that show and he's like nervously kind of like pacing around yeah yeah, yeah. that's the funny that's the funniest one to me that I really noticed that as yeah the like stand-up link
2: when I saw him like sitting outside uh, this in the final section of the film, just waiting for his turn to go up. And like he says, he's here to ride. Like I, could ju- like I was just looking at him going If I'm him right now I'm in a corner nervously sipping beer <laughs> <laughs> Sipping, what am I talking about? Glugging it back Pounding Yeah, yeah, exactly So I, th- I, th- I thought the energy was identical Which is quite funny Then um, just as he's about to compete He sees his family sort of watching him from a distance And then we see him just walk away And uh, from his life as a rodeo rider Yeah, it's a really interesting story Really beautiful movie It's the second time I've seen him And I could probably see myself sitting down to watch it again because it's it like for me as well it it does like as i said it wouldn't be like entirely 1000 percent my cup of tea but um i did find it very moving and i would watch it again i think i think it breezes by as a film
1: yeah i would agree with that i think although for me i really enjoy seeing something that i've never seen before uh, getting some insight into a world that's completely foreign to me and that's how i felt here Whereas I feel like a lot of the ideas that were expressed in Nomad Land were things I'd already seen before mm. and the real, what felt like a lack of conflict and character motivation hurt that film for me. Although I still really like it. I mean, I thought it was, it was obviously beautiful for what Zhao is uh, capable of, of doing, mm. but i definitely preferred The Rider. Just before we get into Nomadland, we did receive uh, some listener feedback on our episodes of, uh, regarding Birth and Destroyer, specifically some feedback uh, about the film Birth. Hmm. And uh, this feedback came from uh, esteemed Irish comedian John Spillan.
2: Okay, here we go.
1: And uh, I'll I'll just play you a very, very, very short clip, just the introduction to his feedback.
0: Hello and welcome to Voice Noted uh, Frendo, an accompaniment podcast to Call It Frendo. This is where we uh, review the Call It Frendo podcast via Voice Note, hence the name Voice Note Frendo.
1: John sent me about uh, a a 10 minute rebuttal to our uh, opinions of the film Birth and he he uh, laid out a very spirited case that actually swayed me. Uh, he genuinely yeah. has a he had a, a very nice theory about birth. Basically the film is all about how the characters are completely deluded. How every single character is and uh yeah, it was very interesting. So I'm going to, I'll add uh that to the end of the episode so you can listen to John Spellan talking about the film Birth. Of course, please make sure to to follow John. What's his uh what's his Instagram name? I'm not sure. John
2: Spellan or something like that. I mean, the thing is about John is uh, yeah, I I'm not careful about recommending him to anybody. I recommend his stuff to all, all people. But like, if, uh, it's the sort of thing that uh, you have a very similar reaction to John Spillane. Actually, as I remember, is that uh, I like it, on the one hand it's objectively just pure idiocy, but I don't think uh, I find anybody funnier. <laughs> like, no,
1: he's always a person. Uh, I'll always go and watch John whenever he does anything. And at the moment, you can find him on Instagram at the John Spillane, That's S P I L L A N E. And uh, he's constantly making the type of content. It's the type of content that is not on places like SNL.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: He's he's making funny, interesting stuff, sketches and et cetera, and bits of insane stand-up. So please go follow John Spillan. But yeah, I'll, I'll add his uh, his insights into birth at the end of the show. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can send an email to colitforendopodcast at gmail.com. Please follow the Instagram, call it Friendo Podcast. And also you can find myself at Andy J. Ritchie. That's Andy J. A. Y. Ritchie on Instagram. And Donica's at Money Wales. Clever. M-U-N-N-Y-W-A-L-E-S. Mm-hmm. It's very clever. So yeah, we'd love to hear from
2: you. We would definitely love to hear from you. Yeah, when SNL stopped backing things like McGruber, the need for John Spillane was born. So I'm glad he's still making work, you know?
1: Nomad Land is a 2020 American neo-Western drama film directed... Written, edited, and produced by Chloe Zhao. Uh, She also made the coffee on set. She sewed the costumes herself. Uh, She ground the lenses for the cameras. She developed the film. Um, She was a casting agent. She acted all the roles. (laughs) So she's quite... She's quite good. Yes. It's her third film. It was filmed over the course of four months in 2018 at the same time as she was doing pre-production on Eternals, which I'm looking forward to. But it has been postponed, obviously, due to the COVID, the ongoing COVID situation mm. you may have heard about. The film is an adaptation of the 2017 non-fiction book Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century by Jessica Bruder. The film tells the story of a woman named Fern, played by the always amazing Frances McDormand and the people she meets while engaging in a nomadic life on the highways and campgrounds of the American West. What was your familiarity with with this before you watched it?
2: All the usual well, uh, awards circuit uh, touting, when I heard about it from a distance and what it was about, I, I, it made me think of American Honey, which is a film I absolutely love. I think American Honey is amazing.
1: Is uh, American Honey, is, is that the Andrea Arnold?
2: Yeah, which introduced uh, Sasha Lane to the world and um, basically showcased uh, Shia LaBeouf being himself an awful lot on film in an uncomfortable way. I mean, he's a bit of a dick in yeah. that film and it's transpired he seems to have been a bit of a dick in real life. But anyway, uh, who am I to judge? What? I'm someone to judge. Yeah, definitely. What am I talking about? Anyway, I was familiar with that from that sort of distance. And I thought to myself, uh, I hope it's not a big bunch of wank like Into the Wild.
1: I think Into the Wild is the film that you can draw the clearest comparisons with. I have a complicated relationship with Into the Wild because I first saw it when I was living in Portugal. Or I was living in Spain and I was I was visiting Lisbon and uh, I saw it I saw it in Portugal and what this was 2007 or 2008 because I think it came out it came out in the UK I, I saw it in the cinema in the UK much later than when I saw it when I was in Portugal and it, at that time I mean I was in my sort of mid twenties and obviously my head was full of wank <laughs> as it probably still is but like I immediately connected with the the alexander super tramp character hmm well as time as as time has passed (laughs) as as normally happens as you as you mature and get older now when i look at that he just he angers me as a character and as as a person yes and also i mean i've 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 read the book a number of times and I can see the argument that that Alex was idiotic in in some of his in some of his choices and how he chose to prepare to go and live in the wild which there are some similar uh, arguments could be uh, could be made that Fern is in the same way isn't really prepared for the life that she's chosen but um I I really liked Into the Wild when I originally watched it and this is the the criticism that I leveled at Nomadland about the lack of conflict or the lack of motivation is at least in Into the Wild, mm. Alex's motivations are extremely clear. He had a, a really dysfunctional upbringing, a complicated relationship with his father, mm. and it was clear that that was a driving force as to why he chose to I uh, chose to run away. You see, yeah, go with,
2: ahead. with Into the Wild, I actually enjoy it as a film. I but it took me many years to watch it because I disliked the the manner in which people were recommending it to me so much for years. And as long as you've known me, I've been a huge film fan. I've always been a huge (laughs) film fan. And normally... I will jump on board any recommendation that people give me but it was just the sort of wanky manner in which people were recommending The Film <laughs> Into the Wild that I could not get on board with and I and after many many years then just a couple of years ago I watched it and I did I really actually did enjoy it so I suppose my averse reaction to it is much more so to the sort of recommendations I was getting around it and I do think there's conflict in it I did like I th- I think it leans a little heavily on the um relationship with the father for my taste although you've read the book so that might be 1000% accurate for all I know my judgment of Into the Wild is more so directed at the people and the type of recommendations it was getting because I actually do think that I don't think the film is recommending people go and live in the wild and disappear off the grid I actually I don't think it's doing that at all I think it's kind of it approaches its story sort of like a uh, Hunter S Thompson in the hell's angels, which is, you know, make up your own mind there, you know, I'm not going to dictate to you, but I think most people took it as a cue to, to just disappear off the grid or at least to romanticize that notion, which is extra annoying because, you know, the tourist, like it was, I was in university at the time and I'm sure all the people are probably working middle management somewhere. And, you know I mean? It was just a five minute moment for them to romanticize that while under the influence of marijuana,
1: I think the things that I originally liked about Into the Wild at the time are things that I probably hate now, like Eddie Vedder playing the ukulele. Oh, stuff.
2: right, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: think, think Things like that, that in 2007, I was, on board. I was quite lucky because I, I saw Into the Wild prior to, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't well known. I mm. saw it really, really early, mm. so I missed anyone. You know, I didn't know anything about it when I watched it, and I found it very, very powerful. But as as the years have gone on, uh, yeah, I view it less favourably. Although the imagery is really, really beautiful, mm. I just think Sean Penn, Sean Penn, unsurprisingly, is extremely heavy-handed. Yeah, in a way that Chloe Zhao isn't.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sean Penn is uh, like I I don't know. He's just has revealed himself more and more to be a bit of a tit over the years. I think if you ever need an a, a, if you ever need a full, like fully. Coloured picture of exactly the kind of noncing that annoys me about, let's say, Hollywood types. You can read the letter he wrote to Trey Parker and Matt Stone. Honestly, if ever there's a DVD worth tracking down, it might be Team America World Police because the extras and the interviews with them talking about their inspiration for the film is much more lacerating than anything you see in the film because in the film, you're, they're using puppets. So you can take it non-seriously, but these guys really have a bone to pick with the acting world in general. Sean Penn wrote them a letter in reference to the episode of South Park, Giant Turd Versus Douche Sandwich, in which they're basically oh. tying it all together here, Andy, recommend that people don't vote. And Sh- yeah, I recall Sean Penn had a real bone to pick about that. And like, honestly, you should uh, we we I, we could even look up the letter right now, but or you could include it in the show notes or whatever. But it is like a hilarious, and it's hilarious, and it's simultaneously you're watching it going, oh, of course, you made something like into the wild with that level of sincerity. <laughs> of course, <laughs> I think you there's did. a certain
1: the, there's a certain generation who just views Sean Penn when he's doing all this type of thing, going like Spicoli spicoli's telling us this he's lecturing <laughs> us on this dog shit
2: i do recommend uh look at people looking up that letter but uh let's let's get back to nomad Lancer, will we? yeah
1: so you mentioned some of the awards the film has already won a whole host uh chloe Zhao herself won the golden lion at berlin the film is nominated for four golden globes best motion picture drama best actress drama for mcdormand and best screenwriter and best director for chloe Zhao it seems likely it will also score some uh, some Oscar nominations. I'm sure it will, yeah. So look out for that. The film opens with a title card explaining the real-life situation of the town of Empire, Nevada, where the character Vern had been living. Empire was a company town serving a gypsum mine, which closed in 2011. Soon after the closure of the mine, the employees vacated their residences, effectively rendering Empire a ghost town. In order to reflect this real-life event, the film is set in 2011. Which feels a little strange at times because some of the content and you, you, the way that Amazon is shown and people kind of using their phones and stuff yeah it feels it feels like it's 2020 or 2019 or whatever
2: yeah, maybe iPhones just haven't updated much since uh, 2011 but yeah there's particularly when she's using her phone it just seems like now yeah I don't think there's any other name actress that could have pulled off something like this.
1: I think Frances McDormand is always willing to expose herself. Mm. The honesty and brutality of aging. There are multiple scenes where, like, there's one scene where she has to piss at the side of the road. There's another one where she has an upset stomach and has to shit into a big tub. Mm. I feel like I can't think of too many actresses who would have pulled off that level level of vulnerability
2: Maybe everybody else is indulging in facelifts, but yeah, she's sort of aged like a regular looking person,
1: you know? That is highlighted when we're introduced to David Strathairn later, because he's 72 years old, Mm. and he's, he's aging like a fine wine. He looks hunky, and she's a good 10 years younger than him, and she is also morphing into a 72-year-old man, which is unfortunate. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Frances McDormand, you're one of the greatest actresses. She is, she is truly. In uh, the world. She, so at the start of the film, we see a recently bereaved Fran selling her possessions and leaving Empire to drive south in her van, which doubles as her home. She checks into an RV park before starting a seasonal job at a little upstart company called Amazon. Uh, At Amazon, she meets a lady called Linda May, who tells her about a big nomad RV camp meetup in Arizona and invites her down there. Fern initially refuses, trying instead to find work in Nevada, which does not go well. I really enjoyed seeing the inside of of, of a big Amazon factory. Yeah. and seeing how the goods are boxed.
2: Yeah, me too. I I really did as well. Um, and I'm wondering, like, would Jeff Bezos take a grim look at something like this? Because it's like, or it doesn't make it look horrible. It just it is what it is, you know.
1: Or did Amazon pay to have this shown? Because I don't think it's particularly negative of Amazon. I think it shows Amazon, like, hey, Amazon hires seasonal workers. Amazon. Pays for her camping fee at the RV park that she's she's parked at. So, like, Amazon is paying for seasonal workers to stay in their vans near the facility, and the the workers of Amazon also, they're all very happy. All kind, there's like no negative aspect. I mean, everything I've heard about working in a big Amazon facility <laughs> is the complete opposite of this. Yeah, it's me too. People being monitored monitored for every single second. Mm. So I feel like Amazon probably paid for this uh, product placement.
2: We get our first big dose of the non-actors in there anyway. So maybe they were, yeah. actual, uh, they were actual employees.
1: But I particularly enjoyed the lady with all the Morrissey tattoos <laughs> explaining, <laughs> explaining why Mor- Morrissey's lyrics are so powerful which uh, is always always makes me laugh, given how, how much he is hated now.
2: Yeah, took me back to uh, university just as much as thinking about into the wild.
1: <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, Linda is the first of a number of real people who share honest moments with Fern. Uh, in Linda's case, she describes considering suicide after the 2008 financial crash. And, um, yeah, I think that is, as we've mentioned before in The Rider, that's probably Zhao's greatest strength, is her ability to harness real emotion from real people Mm. in her films.
2: This lady, uh, I forget that she's talking to, this lady is also... Linda. Is she an actor or a non-actor?
1: No, she's a real person. Swanky, who we meet later on, is a real person. Bob Wells, who's coming up. Yeah, no. These are all real people. This
2: this one lady was the... um, only one I was unsure about.
1: She's explaining this. They, they. I mean, Chloe Al shoots with a lot of close-ups, so you can you can see the same with Swanky. You can see their eyes kind of like glistening with their as they're almost brought to tears. They're just honestly describing their situation. Mm. Fern eventually gives up on staying in Nevada and heads down to a camp at Quartzsite, Arizona, which is run by Bob Wells who, again, is the real person who runs the camp and organizes this big RV meetup. His YouTube channel, Cheap RV Living, has about half a million subscribers. Uh, I watched one of his videos called Living in a Car on $800 a Month, And it was quite depressing. (laughs) So, I I would definitely recommend checking out some of his videos, but they are, they can be a tad depressing. It's
2: very much in line with uh, what uh, Tom Green is up to these days. Tom Green is just traveling around. um, Oh, yeah. He's doing the RV thing, isn't he? Living in a van, yeah, making videos.
1: Which... I think it's good for Tom Green because I I heard him on a couple of podcasts early on in lockdown, and he was just in his big LA mansion by himself, refusing to go out. He was very scared of of Mm. going out on the streets of LA, and it did sound like he was going mad yeah so that's it's good that he ended up getting out and getting in a van
2: yeah yeah actually he's made some spectacular videos along the way just visiting ghost towns and so and so forth one thing this to immediately and to continue the contrast with into the wild one thing nomadland does very well is it starts out i mean you would be you'd want to be some nailed to the ground complete square to not see a slight appeal in what's going on on screen You can, like, it might slightly appeal to you, but the film does a much better job of sort of painting the grim realities of it than something like Into the Wild. This is not a romantic romanticization of this lifestyle, I would say.
1: As far as I'm aware, I haven't read the book, Mm. but it's nonfiction, and I think it's supposed to be analyzing the situation that has occurred as a response to the uh, financial crisis that a lot of these people lost their homes and the only way that they could survive was they had to live out of vans or cars. And they they make the best of their situations. For some of them, they're escaping something, some whatever traumatic experience that, that happened to them earlier. For other people, it's just, it's a way to get out and see the world. But I think quite early on for Fern, she gets that pretty soon when she talks to Swanky. She realizes that like, it's, it's, a dangerous lifestyle. You need to be very, very careful. If you make mistakes, mm. if you don't take it seriously, okay. You have a van. It's better than being out on a on a bus in the middle of nowhere, like mm. uh, like like Alex. But yeah, like you need to be careful. It's it's not it's not an easy lifestyle.
2: No, no, no. It jumps quickly from. Her doing it out of necessity to revealing at this thing with Bob Wells that this is just a life people have, cho- have chosen it.
1: So, yeah, at the camp, uh, we see what I assume are real nomads talking about their situations, such as one woman who worked a corporate job for 20 years, but decided to quit after seeing her colleague die before he retired. Uh, we see Fern become a part of the local community and she meets a guy called David, played by the great David Strathairn. Uh, yeah, I had a question for you. Are you far enough into the expanse to have encountered David Strathern mm. yet as Ashford? No, I am not. But I'm looking forward to it. Uh, He's very, very, very good. Particularly
2: with The Expanse, my habit of watching TV shows and refusing to just breeze right into the next season is just proving very annoying because I recommended The Expanse to a lot of people. They've all since just completely finished uh, it and I'm telling them, no, 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 I've just finished season two and I'm not going to watch season three for a a few months probably. So there. David Strathern, though will always be to me the man who shagged Carmela Soprano.
1: Nice. He has a he has an interesting career because he I think when he was at film school he met John Sayles. And so Oh yeah and he he, he appears in the
2: return of the Deco- the Secaucus 7.
1: Right, cuz he ended up being like one of John Sayles' go-to guys cuz they they knew each other. Mm. They've known each other for a long time. Uh, he's had a bit of a weird career because he's clearly an excellent actor, but he's more of a kind of character guy and He's the type of person that you've seen in a million things, but I don't remember him being in the lead in anything except for his Oscar-winning role as Edward R. R. Murrow in Good Night and Good Luck.
2: And he's very well placed in this as the only actor, so obviously all the uh, Hollywood grammar uh, wired into your brain makes you think, oh, here's the love interest, and I thought that was excellent wrong-footing. Were you thinking that I was thinking? Oh, Fern's going to shag him.
1: The elements that we see, I expected a type of almost platonic relationship. Mm. Maybe because I don't, I didn't want to engage with the idea of these two having sex. And no offense, <laughs> but can they not just hang out and I don't yeah, know, yeah. play chess or something? My note, my to, my
2: note at his appearance was don't make Dave be a love interest, and thankfully that didn't. Uh, you got your wish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, like, the thing is, it's it's interesting because. Um, I, I think very soon along the way, you realize that that's just not going to happen because he's immediately kind of a little bit pushing for it. And uh,
1: May, maybe, I mean, I still don't know that I still don't know that I read that there's a sexual element to it. I, he just I feel like he wants company more than anything, just, which is just lonely. Is fair. Yeah, yeah, that's true. At the end of the RV meetup event, it's just Fern and one other lady left, a retiree called Swanky. Swanky hangs a pirate flag outside of her van. So this is clearly, Zhao is creating a series of, of, of pirate motifs. We had the guy with the hook for a hand and now the pirate flag. <laughs> so that's it's a, a hidden theme in Chloe Zhao's film. So I look forward to seeing that. I would love in to Eternal. see
2: Chloe Zhao make a pirate movie.
1: Or or uh, I would be quality or approach
2: Somali pirates as she approached the uh, the Sioux in South Dakota to try and um, make make a pirate movie and then just uh, end up as a pirate herself.
1: The other film that Chloe's I was supposedly working on is a biopic about Bass Reeves. Who's Bass Reeves? Bass Reeves. I think you might have seen the kind of cartoonish TV show thing about him in the Watchmen series. He was a black U.S. marshal in the late 19th century.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I remember that. I remember him. Wow, Chloe's out doing a period yeah. piece. That would be something, wouldn't
1: it? Yep, and that's been supposedly being produced by Amazon. Her best friends in the world. <laughs> she loves the old Bezos, and who doesn't? And so does David Strathairn, obviously, because he was in The Expanse so swanky the lady with the pirate flag swanky helps fern with a few van life teething problems before revealing that she's terminally ill mm. i find i find this scene to be very moving it felt uh, yes. honest and real kind of the the acceptance of the finite nature of existence in a way that alex and in into the wild doesn't really have to deal with except when he's dying mm. at the age of 23 or whatever but uh, yeah, I found Swanky talking about just accepting the e- explaining some of the beautiful things that she's witnessed while kayaking. Yeah, just she's come to she's she's made peace with the fact that she will soon die, and she's accepted that she's she's lived a good life.
2: This part made me instantly think of Cormac McCarthy mm. because I remember seeing an interview with him that is saying like when he he first, he took his first um, trip across across the country. And he just made a decision that he said, I just don't ever want to work. I never want to work. I need to figure out a way that I n- I'm never working. And that's, mm-hmm. that's just how I, he decided to sort of live his life. And um, this scene reminded me of that just because this lady just seems to, I, I think, part and parcel of why she's so accepting of uh, her death is that she's definitely lived her life.
1: Next, Fern drives up to Badlands National Park in South Dakota this is close to the Pine Ridge Reservation where Zao's previous two films were set. Here she works on a campsite with Linda, and they meet David, who's working as a tour guide. This is where you could possibly see that some kind of romance is, mm. is, going, to, is going to develop. But uh, at this point, or after this experience, David uh, convinces her to do another seasonal job. Working at Wall Drug, which is a big tourist shop in Wall, South Dakota, that actually looks pretty fun.
2: Yeah, yeah, it does. Got a big,
1: massive dinosaur and stuff.
2: This is, um, uh, like... Uh, I want to go there. At one part of the uh, film, she, she says uh, she likes work. And uh, this kind of, this sold me on that because, d- <laughs> despite how it might, it might look, I like work of a manual sort as well. I enjoy it. Uh, like, I've... I, despite the fact that I'll probably never work in the service industry again, I really enjoyed my time in it, and I enjoyed even like manual labour jobs I did. And I think her time in what's it called again? Wall. Wall drug. Yeah, yeah. That just reminded me of that. I just find find work uh, in the past have found work like that um, very meditative and nice. And I, I do think that like the, the, that sequence in the film really uh, sells you on that. It just sort sort of breezes by.
1: If I could listen to podcasts and music, I would be happy to do any manual job or data entry (laughs) as long as I had something to listen to. Yeah. Shout out to anyone who's listening to this while doing manual labor or data entry or something or working. Well done. We're on
2: your side. We're on the worker's side. We're on your
1: side. That's right. We're going to take down the big corporations and we're going to help the small companies like Amazon be successful. We're
2: going to come to your place of work like Chloe Zhao and uh, make stories out of your real life. With you in them. Basically, That's right. we're going to film you uh, having a wank at work. That's
1: the plan. Yeah. So, on the topic of work, while uh, David and Fern are working in the kitchens at Waldrog, David's son James turns up. James is played by Tay Strathern, David Strathern's real life son. Mm. There you go. James's wife is pregnant, so he invites David to stay with him and his family to help look after his grandson.
2: Wow, I, I want to live in that house way more than Fern's van,
1: by the way. I am. Uh, but that's this is the only conflict that Fern has. So, yeah, David invites Fern down as well, but she refuses uh, to go with him. Instead, we see a scene of, of Cat Clifford from The Rider playing guitar with his buddies. Mm. He is in all three of Chloe's house films uh, so far. So I look forward to seeing him in The Eternals playing his guitar, singing songs. Nice. After that scene we see Fern working a manual labor job probably listening to this podcast with one headphone in.
2: Oh yeah she's doing the beet uh, harvest.
1: Is that what it mm. is? Like it just looked it looked like she was working a pre hardcore. Yeah it looks fuck, it looks mining mining job or something. Backbreaking. Unfortunately her van engine seizes up. And with no cash, she's forced to go and stay with her sister. And this gives us uh, this gives us some insight into her family life and childhood.
2: Yeah, it's a really that's probably the most interesting scene in the film for me.
1: It's clear straight away that they're they're having this barbecue outside, and uh, the people there are talking about buying real estate. Mm. <laughs> and it's <laughs> and she gets kind of lured into this argument where she's going like, well. You know, why should you like maybe subprime mortgages are bad (laughs) and the financial collapse could have been avoided if we hadn't if people hadn't been dicks.
2: It made me very aware that uh, we're maybe less so you. Sorry, Andy, but I'm certainly of a post recession generation where we're very much growing up aware of this kind of thing and skeptical of it, or at least I am. Uh, you know be, like because and only, only because it's all been painted very clearly for me in black and white but i mean just hearing these lads at the barbecue talk about it, it like <laughs> even in a post-recession world it kind of like makes you wince a little bit and you're just like no 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 not uh, that, is not good this is really really not good i, th- I thought that was really interesting and particularly with, like a uh, they said we we can't all just, uh, just we can't all just uh, pick up sticks and move her around and she's like well is that what I did that's what I did is it yeah I thought that was like uh, just really nice and is what, like you've spent time traveling around America
1: Yeah I, I spent about three or four months about three months traveling around on the Greyhound and I went to something like 37 states so I lived my own kind of similar experience in to, to some extent. I remember I met a bunch of hippies. I think I was somewhere like Nebraska or something, and I went with them to Eugene, Oregon, and I spent a week just with the type of people that you see at the RV meetup by younger.
2: I saw a bit of that around California myself as well because we went traveling around Mm. there during like off-season, so any of the campsites were... If there was anybody in the campsites we stayed in, often there wasn't. It was spooky. But if there ever was, it was people like this. But no, the reason I was going... Uh, I was uh, approaching that as, uh, okay, it's happened more so in recent years, and certainly with a film like American Honey. But um, driving around the States, you can ju- like, more so than anywhere else I've ever been, you could just see just an amount of just gigantic houses. And like the average income in the States cannot be so high that everyone's affording these. I mean, the, the entire country seems to be um, built on credit as you're driving around
1: yeah i don't know i but i feel that way whenever i watch anything about the u.s though i feel like you know coming from um a country with like a, <laughs> something of a socialist tradition mm. the lack of a safety net in the usa always it makes me anxious yeah just how people are are like you see it in the writers as well they're like yeah we, we made eight hundred dollars we're gonna make it to the next month yeah like I, that that mindset is just, it's, it's horrifying to me that like I always, mm. I felt that i I felt that constantly throughout my, my life living in Europe and working with people from the States, which was that they knew that they would have to go back to the U S and make some serious money and work and only take like a week's holiday because the, there's just a, there's a there's a fire under you. There's a constant drive to make as much money as possible be, because otherwise you could end up living in a car. I remember when
2: I was traveling around there, and uh, we stopped in a little town called Needles, California, just to get a cup of coffee in, in oh, the yeah. McDonald's strip mall. Have you been
1: to Needles? I feel like I may have. Well, we just—I definitely know the name, but I can't remember exactly where it we, is. Is it on the way to? Is it on the way to Vegas? Where is it's
2: it? It's in the Mojave Desert, anyway. Yeah, so right. it could be. Uh, we we stopped in there. Uh, just at the McDonald's get a cup of coffee and just saw like um, morbidly obese family come in, just like two morbidly obese adults and three morbidly obese uh, children shuffle in and sit down. And I was looking around and I was thinking, oh, this is the kind of America that people are always giving out about. So we decided to take a drive around the town. And yeah, the place just had a feeling of destitution that you, you have to kind of look a lot harder around uh, certainly around ireland and uh, around europe as well to 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 encounter like the only place i've really encountered something like it was um in greece actually like driving around small towns in greece and uh, that re- mm-hmm. p- put me in mind of like places like this in the states but yeah there is there are social floors beneath uh, which uh, you, you, know, you very easily fall and not recover from. And like in the case of somewhere like Needles, there didn't seem to be anything to the town except the strip mall by the highway. And at the same time, yeah. at least 40,000 people were living there.
1: This this scene of uh, Firm with her sister and her sister's family, this to me is probably, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the biggest distinctions between this and into the wild because mm. I feel like in I feel like into the wild focused far more on the psychological issues which influence Alex's journey mm. it stated that firm was constantly looking to escape but I didn't pick up on any clear dysfunction driving her choices she she chose to leave uh, she chose to leave home at a young age and she she met a guy named Bo and got married to him after about two months and then ended up moving to this town of Empire Nevada because that's where he was working. But it just—you get the feeling that she kind of left her f- left her family and moved away because she felt that there was something more interesting out there. That's what her sister says to her, or accuses her of. Mm. But it's just interesting because I feel like I expect in a modern interpretation, I expect there to be more of a psychological breakdown. I mean, we do see we see elements of this because Fern clearly feels uncomfortable in her sister's house. She feels uncomfortable in David's son's house. Yeah. She just, she does she doesn't appear comfortable anywhere, anywhere. And she uh, similarly, like, I wonder if it's just as she states it's because now that her husband is, has, has died, she wants to, to maintain, she feels like if she moves away or she, she's, she's somehow going to break the, break the link that she has with him. But I don't know. It just, it, it, it was unusual to me. It's not the, it's not the type of psychological view that I'm accustomed to yeah fern's sister offers to let her stay long term but fern refuses instead she goes to visit david and his family who now have a young son david asks her to stay with them long term Uh, although fern is made to feel welcome she seems extremely uncomfortable and takes off in the final scenes we see fern back working at amazon before she heads up to the remnants of the town of empire nevada the film ends with the view from her old back porch, which he described previously, a vast wasteland out towards the mountains and freedom.
2: I mean, it's a it, it, it's a nice film. I I, I maybe I was more wrong footed than you on the David uh, Strathern thing. What was it? What was your major takeaway from it? There's no real arc to this, is there?
1: Not particularly. As I mentioned, I've mentioned multiple times that I think the lack of mm. drama or conflict uh, was the biggest thing holding it back for me. I just think it's, again, it's it's giving an insight into this, into this real-life phenomenon of this group of people who have rejected the traditional life of buying a house, or they've, for some reason, they've moved away from that concept because of uh, a series of external events that have caused them to, to end up living in vans. It's just a kind of it's it's a character study. Mm. But I I don't think it develops enough of the character for me. Like I don't it doesn't reveal enough about the character, even the even the, the 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 character of Fern. So I like it. I think it's very beautiful, but it's I, I prefer the rider
2: i think more than anything else it's about chloe Zhao's ability to do what she does and that's um not enough to sustain the story as it as it as it might while it is yeah as you said it is it is beautiful yeah the, the lack of the lack of an arc does something to you but at the same time i felt myself enjoying it in the same way i would i don't know like a, a vice documentary or something like that you know because mm. uh, you are i mean the yeah. You're getting an interesting look into a world that you'd have no idea about otherwise.
1: How this film came to be was that Francis McDormand and producer Peter Spears optioned the film rights to the book, and then, off of the strength of what after watching the writer, they got in contact with Chloe Zhao and Chloe Zhao. And she was a perfect choice for based based on the book.
2: She was perfect choice of director. It's
1: it's clearly exactly the film that that Francis McDormand wanted to make. Mm. Yeah, and it's been extremely successful. It's been very well received. Everyone loves it, but it's not. I mean, I st- I still think it's a very good film. It's nice to watch, but uh, I don't think it's Chloe Al's best work.
2: No, um, and it's it's very much uh, getting that kind of tout. Like it's gonna, mm. you, you you get the feeling it's gonna sweep the sweep the boards this year.
1: What is it up against?
2: <laughs> not much. I'm not sure about that. Uh, I know people. There was a big furor about how shite the Golden Globe uh, nominations were. But I mean,
1: so I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what it's up against for Best Motion Picture Drama: uh, "The Father."
2: Oh, who's in that? With Anthony Anthony Hoppin.
1: Anthony Anthony Hopkins, yeah. Olivia Coleman, uh, Mark Gatiss, etc. I haven't watched that. "Mank." I haven't watched. I still haven't got into mm-hmm. that yet. Uh, promising young promising young women which you've watched as well and then trial of the chicago seven which i again i still haven't got around to any of these new films oh you should watch trial of the chicago seven i will eventually uh francis mcdormand is up against uh viola davis for marini's black bottom andra day for the united states versus billy holiday vanessa kirby for pieces of a woman and carrie mulligan for promising young women
2: Frances, Frances McDormand should probably win anytime she's nominated. I would find it hard-pressed to see anybody being better than her. Because, as well, I mean, that's the thing. I listen to a few film podcasts and I just grow weary of listening to people give out about awards nominations because I've long since made my piece that none of it really matters or reflects the quality at all. Look at how many big, loud, showy Meryl Streep has, and that's not, that's really not the kind of acting that I sort of value. I mean, there's a time and a place mm. for it, such as Daniel Day Lewis playing Bill the Butcher, who's a big, brazen, loud character, but it doesn't necessarily spell out quality acting to me. And like, I think, I think Frances McDormand is excellent in this. There's a scene, particularly yeah. when she, um, begins working at that camp where you can kind of just sort of see her um, emerging very convincingly into her new way of life and sort of embrace it and she's excited and it's really subtle and nice and also the way she kind of like scorns Dave on another on a number of occasions is just really really well played it's not showy I love acting like that and she's well able to be showy Mm -hmm. as well she can do it all but that's not what the role demands here and it's It's perfect for it. She slots perfectly well into the world. It's like I said at the start. I don't think any other name actress could have convincingly done something like this. Anyway.
1: I think we're all done.
2: Yeah, yeah, we are. It was a good week. Not the best one, but perfectly acceptable. What are you bringing to the table?
1: So this week I decided to go for State of Grace, which is a 1990 crime film inspired by the Westies and starring everyone's favorite director, Sean Penn and, and Gary Oldman. All I know about this film is that it came out in the same week as Goodfellas and was completely overshadowed, but it apparently it's grown into a bit of a cult classic, so mm. I'd, like to, I'd like to check it out, even though it may be shy.
2: Yeah, yeah. I've uh, met uh, plenty of fans of this film over the years, and I've never actually seen it myself either, so yeah.
1: Oh, okay. That's good. Yeah, yeah. all
2: well and good. What well, I am bringing to the table is 1984 Dino de la Renta's uh, historical epic. It's the fifth version of the story of the Mutiny on the Bounty. In uh, 1984, The Bounty, starring Mel Gibson, with and also featuring Laurence Olivier, Daniel DeLewis, and Liam Neeson. Hell yeah.
1: Yeah, a crazy cast.
2: Mm, cool beans. So I've got for you a 10 or a Cervantes? 10. And it is
1: Cervantes! yay good nice fuck you stay of grace don't have to watch that
2: show <laughs> uh, alright do you want to hear what you could have won please okay I was going to zero in on another 1990s crime film that I've always been meaning to get around to watching 1995's devil in a blue dress well okay, fuck it yeah yeah we'll, we'll never watch it now well so we're going to be watching at least the bounty <laughs> which is definitely a film I will not be able to watch with my girlfriend so there we are now nice, okay, nice. What, uh, what's, what am I going to be watching in tandem
1: well, my original plan was to go with either Mars Attacks or Galaxy Quest.
2: Are you giving me a choice?
1: But no, no, no. But instead, I opted away from this uh, chocolate bar-related link. Bounty, of course, famously uh, <laughs> a, a coconut-based confectionery item. So oh, you lost me for was, a few I, seconds, I, I,
2: and then you found me.
1: <laughs> I, th- I thought that might be the case. so I thought I should explain. That was my original thinking, but... Instead, I, I decided to be a bit a bit more boring than that. So I was considering also going for something produced by Dino De Laurentiis. I was origin I was thinking about going for uh, David Lynch's Dune, which I I haven't watched. Mm. But I thought I would let us I thought I'd let us off the hook for that. Thank you. So in yeah, so instead I went for something from screenwriter Robert Bolt mm. and his earlier work. He was the screenwriter for Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago, but I wanted to, I didn't want to go for something that was like seven hours long. So instead I went for something that I'm sure you've seen, I guarantee you've seen this and that's 1986's The Mission, but I've never watched Oh
2: yeah, it. yeah, I've seen that. Oh, cool though, happy to watch it again. Alright, nice. Two very historically epic-y, why did I t- change those into adjectives? Two grand uh, historical epics we're going to watch this week, so that means I'm going to be watching the Coloured Friendho films alone, I would imagine, because uh, as far as I've, I've been able to gleam over the years, that uh, historical epics are kind of, for the most part, not to generalise completely, but anti-lady movies. Well, uh, in that case, uh, looking forward to that. Chat you and uh, everybody next week. And Oh yeah, send more mail if you're listening. I know there was a few people that were very, that well, they sent me applause emojis at the announcement of a Chloe Zhao double bill. So let us know your thoughts on the two films, please.
1: Yas Queen. What did you say? Yas Queen.
2: Yas Queen. What's that?
1: I don't have time to explain these cultural touchstones to you. I'm sorry. Uh-huh. You have to figure that out yourself.
2: All right. Cool beans. I'll be Googling that immediately. Uh, so it's bye- mm-hmm. bye-bye from Donna Tiernan.
1: And bye-bye from Andy J. Ritchie.
2: Yay. What's the J for?
0: Hello and welcome to Voice Noted Friendo, uh, uh, an accompaniment podcast to Call It Friendo. Uh, This is where we uh, review the Call It Friendo podcast via Voice Note, hence the name Voice Note Friendo. I'm your host John Spillane, and today we are reviewing Jonathan Glazer's 2004 film... Birth. Uh, This is his pretty maligned middle film in his filmography, um, bookended by his two cult classics, Sexy Beast and Under the Skin. However, I feel Birth is right up there with those films. I think it's better than Under the Skin. I think it's inches away from being as good as Sexy Beast. I think it is, uh, not a masterpiece, but it's certainly, uh, a brilliant film, a five-star uh, film and one that I hope to revisit many times in the future. Uh, one of the best films I've seen in a while. Uh, what is so great about uh, Birth? Well, uh, Birth does a thing that I pretentiously love in films. It's maybe my the thing I most want to see in a film. Uh, Yes, I want to see a brilliant story. Yes, I want to be taken for a ride with brilliant performances and great cinematography and everything, you know, we all know these things. But more than anything, pretentious little Johnny Spills wants to see a theme, a specific theme, explored in the film, and I want that theme to be explored by every character, in every situation, and every interaction with the movie. The whole movie is just an exploration of the theme, and we use our our myriad of characters to explore the myriad of ways this theme can affect people in their lives. Uh, A great example of this would be Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, which I think explores anger very well. Um, uh, Toy Story 4 explores love very well. Uh, And and, uh, Birth, I think, looks at um, at delusion very well. Uh, Specifically, the way we delude ourselves into believing things that just aren't. And we delude ourselves because it helps us get through life easier. This is explored almost exclusively in the prism of relationships in this film, although it does touch on uh, loftier themes along the way. Uh, Nicole Kidman's character, for example, um, uh, is... uh, uh, well, let's start with the, the, uh, the chief chump himself, buddy, Danny Houston. Uh, uh, I kind of grabbed to this theme fairly earlier on when Danny Houston gives the most pathetic engagement speech you've ever heard in your life. Uh, you guys touched on it. I agree with it. Oh, lordy, this was uh, really pathetic. Uh, and it just shows that he's in delusion. He's telling this story like it's a romantic tale. And everybody in that party and all of us watching the movie knows straight away, she doesn't love him. Nicole Kidman does not love Danny Houston. He has deluded himself into thinking this woman loves him, and that this is a romantic story, when in actuality, she's settling for him. And that's his grand delusion. Uh, That delusion is then challenged through the film by the presence of Sean. Uh, It you know, uh, the the idea that she doesn't love him, that she still pines for her ex-husband, that he is not enough for her, bubbles up through the film and, of course, explodes in uh, that brilliant scene where he tries to beat up a little boy by pushing pianos around and all kinds of crack. Great stuff. Nicole Kidman is delusional, of course, in the obvious way when she starts to believe Sean is this little boy. But in many ways as well, um, as the third act revealed, um, uh, and I'll say right now, I really like the third act. Um, um, I think it's, uh, I predicted it from almost the start of the film. I was like, all right, that woman there clearly had an affair with Sean. Every time she's in a scene, the camera's plunked on her face. Uh, uh, Even when she's barely talking But it's just plunked on her She's acting guilty Like we all know know They had an affair Um, And she's buried Some mysterious object I assumed it was his diary Uh, The letters was just a variation of diary I suppose a diary is a little too on the nose But I thought it was going to be a diary uh but um I think that theme that, that ending is not a cop-out ending. I think it actually perfectly encapsulates the team. I'll touch on that in a second. I'm going back to Nicole Kidman. This is my bloody podcast, baby. I hope you've strapped in. Uh so Nicole Kidman is delusional, obviously, because Sean, the young boy, uh thinks reincarnation, that's a, a form of delusion. But she's also delusional and has been delusional for the last ten years believing that her and Sean, the original Sean, had this perfect marriage. She still holds in her heart that they, that they were soulmates and they were in love, and that's what allows her to believe that Sean has been reincarnated, because she thinks they had this magic spiritual connection, which they didn't. Third act reveal shows that Sean wasn't her soulmate. He was a bit of an idiot, He was cheating on her. Uh, he clearly did not hold her in the same esteem. He was not passionately in love with her. Also, his mistress is delusional. She thinks he loved her, and he just had to stay in this marriage with Nicole Kidman. Uh, when The truth probably lies somewhere in between. She deluded herself into thinking that they were for each other, that they were the true couple, Um but they weren't. They He was just riding her on the sly and probably had his own issues he was going through. Um, and neither of them were his soulmate or the person he was supposed to be with. Although they both felt that way. Um, Sean. Young Sean is delusional. Young Sean is delusional, obviously, because he believes he is uh, the reincarnation of Sean. Um, you know, the, it, the film makes sense when you realize he, he has spent months, probably, coming with his dad to these grinds in this building, seeing Nicole Kidman. She looks like Nicole Kidman, so he's fallen in love with her. This idea of her, this woman he doesn't even know. And then he finds these letters, and he just, in his childish, delusional mind, convinces himself, wait, these are love letters she has written to someone named Sean. I'm Sean. He died roughly when I died. Like, he just puts it all together and just, you know loses himself in the delusion um which is far more powerful than what i assumed the ending was going to be which was he's just a bit of a, a sociopathic child or a prick um uh that being said i didn't know that was certainly going to happen i felt that was the most likely ending but the the story had me the whole way uh Every scene was engaging. I was really wrapped up in the plot and involved in the plot. Um, I think it's beautifully... uh, um, The the cinematography is beautiful. Um, I think this film feels very Danish, dare I say. I think if this movie had been directed by someone like Michael Haneke or Thomas Vinterberg, film lectures would be talking about it as a classic. I really do. I think if this was spoken in a foreign language and shot in Europe and it was the exact same movie apart from that, people would herald it as a classic. That's how I feel. I think the fact that it's in America, and it's Nicole Kidman, um, and it costs 20 million, is making people think it's something that it isn't. Uh, Because I think it is absolutely a brilliant film. Um, And that is is—it's all kind of tied together in what I think are those brilliant final moments when Nicole Kidman is posing for a wedding photographs, and she has this big fake smile on her face, and the camera guy is just directing every moment, elbow here, move here, stand like this, put the things, and it just shows how false this, this lie she has told herself is, you know, when she goes into Danny Houston and asks him to take her back, that is the most delusional moment in the movie, because we can see in Nicole Kidman's face, and hear it in her performance, she does not believe the words she's saying. We can see it in Danny Houston's face, face, and we can hear it in the way he responds to her proposal of sorts. Uh, He does not believe it. Neither of them believe they are going to be happy, or think they're going to be happy, but they've just decided to delude themselves into thinking they will be happy, because the alternative is just uh, frightening and unknown to them. Nicole Kidman goes off into the water, you know, this dramatic, she's overwhelmed with emotion, the truth is bursting out, is bursting out from her, uh, she knows that she uh, isn't happy, she's lost and confused, and Danny Houston goes up to her, and he whispers in her ear, and he tell, takes her away, we don't hear what he says, but... It doesn't matter what he says. It's just part of the delusion. He is telling her nonsense. Come on, calm down. It's okay. We're going to be happy. Have some cake. Have a drink. Your mom's looking for you. We're all going to be okay. We're going to be fine. It's not going to be fine. They are set up for a miserable marriage and a hard life, all because they lied to themselves. Um, and allow themselves to believe their own lies. So that's it. Yeah, it's a movie about people lying to themselves and then allowing themselves to believe their own lies. Because um, the ego is a tricky, is a, is a tricky a serpent, Andy J Ritchie. And you have to sometimes take a step back and look at yourself objectively and look at your ego objectively and bloody, make the right decision, and the righteous decision, but anyway, that's just a little bit of my own personal life spilling in there, I've just looked at the time, it's 10 minutes, very long review for uh, birth, but... Uh, you know what, I listen to your whole bloody podcast, so you'll listen to my whole bloody podcast, and if you stop before you got to this point, I will track you down, I'll punch you right in your nose, and I'll say, I know more about movies than you, and you'll be like, what, no, I've I've, I've lived longer, I have a movie podcast, and then I'll be like, no, and I'll fucking kick you in the skull, Anyway, I'm sorry for getting so violent there at the end there, but I will kick you in the skull, if you aren't listening to this, which, although, now, that being said, you wouldn't have heard this warning, because you would have stopped early. So when I do kick you in the skull, it's going to kind of come as a shock. So sorry about that. But you should have kept listening. Because then you wouldn't have got kicked in the skull. Anyway, enough about kicking in the skull. Um, I'm not going to review Destroyer for you right now. Uh, I will very briefly. Uh, Destroyer is also very good. It's not as good as Birth. But I think it's great. I haven't listened to that half of the podcast. So I don't know what you guys think about it yet. Um, so maybe I'll get back to you on a Destroyer. Uh, but uh, very briefly, Destroyer... Also does the thing I love in movies, takes a specific theme, explores it through every character, every interaction. Destroyer is about guilt and uh, the poisonous and toxic uh, effects guilt can have on, on an individual. I'll get into the specifics later uh, when, when I listen to the second half of your, uh, uh, your uh, podcast. But overall... I'm loving the podcast. Um, I'm listening some weeks. Uh, basically, if I've seen the movies or I have enough time to watch the movies or catch up, or if I see the, mo- the movies on the list, I'm like, I don't watch, I watch those this week. I don't listen. Uh, but uh, it's nice to hear people talking about movies and having a good time. And, and you know, I'm not talking about the new releases. It's a fun system. Uh, and uh, you guys are doing great stuff. So, uh, congratulations. Um, and this has been uh, this week's episode of Voice Noted Friendo Play the Jingle.